0: Section 4 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Studies of Muir Glacier by Harry Fielding Reed Part 2 Muir Glacier. General Features. Muir Glacier occupies a depression in the mountains about thirty-five miles long, and from six to ten wide. It is fed by a great number of tributaries, of which the first northern, the second northern, and the northwestern are by far the largest. These again are made up of smaller glaciers. The general slope of the surface, based on a barometric reading, made between Tree Mountain and Granite Canyon, is about one degree fifteen seconds. The appearance of the glacier towards the northwest indicates that the slope there is about the same. The total area drained by the system is about 800 square miles, the actual surface of the ice being about 350 square miles. The area draining into Muir Inlet is about 700 square miles. Most of the precipitation which falls on this area flows off as water in the subglacial streams. The rest, compressed into ice, is forced through the narrow gateway, two and a half miles wide into the inlet where the glacier terminates in a vertical wall of ice varying from 130 to 210 feet above the water surface from which large masses are continually separating to become icebergs see page 48 and plates one two and thirteen as already stated the depth of the water is in places seven hundred and twenty feet and, as this is not enough to float a mass of ice rising so high above the water as mere glacier, the ice must reach to the very bottom and must attain a thickness of nine hundred feet. The actual length of the ice front facing the water is nine hundred and twenty feet, or one and three quarter miles. On each side, the glacier sends forward a wing which rises in the shape of a wedge over the stratified sands and gravels of the shore. The upper surfaces of the wings, like the ice front, are about two hundred feet above the water level. This applies only to the parts of the wings overlooking the inlet. The parts nearer the side of the mountains are fifty to one hundred feet lower, and here the ice ends like an ordinary alpine glacier. The wings are fringed by treacherous quicksands which support large stones and look firm enough, but the tourist who steps upon them carelessly will quickly sink in over his ankles these quicksands are composed of fine glacial mud thoroughly soaked with water from the melting ice the ice front has a wonderful coloring places from which ice has recently broken off are deep blue sometimes almost black this color lightens under exposure to the air and sun and in a few days becomes pure white all stages are represented in the ice front which therefore shows all shades of blue in striking variety the blue color of the ice is caused by the absorption of the other constituents of light passing through it, and is exactly analogous to the hues of colored glasses. When exposed to the sun and rain, the ice undergoes a kind of weathering near its surface, which prevents the blue light within from passing out, and reflects nearly all the light which falls on it from outside, so that we see merely ordinary white light reflected, practically unchanged from the ice. TRIBUTARIES Beginning at the right we find three tributaries coming in from the southeast. The dirt glacier, see plate three, sweeps around in a great curve from behind Mount Wright. Its lower part is completely covered with debris for fully a mile and a half from its mouth. Above this the glacier is particularly clean. The white glacier, see plate four, which joins the Muir just beyond Mount Case, is remarkably beautiful. Arising in a circle of snowy mountains, it flows down a deep, narrow valley at an angle of about ten degrees, its perfectly white surface marked by the wonderfully symmetrical parallel curves of three or four dark moraines. It is about four miles long and half a mile wide. A little further is the southeastern tributary, Sea Plate Five, fed by a number of smaller glaciers, this glacier is not hemmed in by mountains, but crosses a divide east of A-sub-157, over which the ice flows into some valley on the other side. This divide has an altitude of 2,000 or 2,500 feet. About ten miles southeast of our camp, a large glacial stream discharges into Glacier Bay. It must drain the southern side of the mountains which bound these three tributaries. Still further eastward is Main Valley, which, though it probably once contained a tributary, is now an outlet of Muir Glacier. The ice flows down this valley in a stream three miles wide, apparently with a very slow motion. A few miles down the valley, the ice ends in a high wall facing Main Lake, into which it occasionally discharges a berg. The stream draining this lake flows through a broad, flat valley of sands and gravels toward the southeast, and finally empties into Lynn Canal. The three valleys entering the eastern side of Main Valley also have flat gravel-covered floors through which rush the streams from the snow-fields and small glaciers at their heads. Two of these valleys are beyond the present termination of the glacier. Formerly the ice must have extended across their mouths, hemming them in and converting them into lake beds. The upper valley is now in just this condition. The lake which occupies it has been called Berg Lake on account of the great number of icebergs in it last summer, eighteen ninety. Just north of the entrance to Main Valley lies Girdled Glacier, so called on account of the moraine which completely surrounds it. See plates six and eleven. It can be seen from the end of Muir Glacier, but is so foreshortened that one would not suspect that the visible portion is three and a half miles long west of and separated from girdled glacier only by a narrow ridge is granite canyon a deep gorge with precipitous sides running about eight miles into the heart of the mountains the ice slopes downward into the canyon whose drainage however must be back under the ice for although i was unable to see every point of the ridge which closes in the furthest side of this valley i could see sufficient of it from different points of observation to convince me that no part of it is less than a thousand feet above the floor of the valley. This curious condition seems to be due to the fact that the valley once contained a tributary glacier, which, on account of the present smaller supply of ice and the reflection of the heat from the northern side of the canyon, has melted down more rapidly than the surface of the main glacier, so that now, although this I could not see, the glaciers draining into this valley are probably entirely separated from the ice entering at its mouth." The tributaries so far mentioned supply none of the ice which forms the ice front in Muir Inlet. All the ice coming from them that does reach the end of the glacier is compressed into about eight hundred yards between the ice front and the mountain on the east. If a line were drawn from the Nanatuck H to the eastern side of the first northern tributary and a second line toward the northwest at right angles to the first, the sources of all the ice which reaches the ice front would lie in the quadrant between them the first and second northern tributaries and the main glacier present no striking peculiarities see plate seven these are immense streams of ice fed by innumerable small glaciers the mountains which rise between them and through them are deeply laden with snow and toward the northwest seem to raise only their summits through the icy sea the extremities of these branches could not be clearly determined although they all seem to connect by low divides with valleys beyond the northwestern tributary heads in two beautiful white conical mountains, which we called the snow cones. A part of its ice flows over the divide between L sub three and L sub five and joins a large glacier which is probably identical with the one entering the head of Glacier Bay. The western tributary supplies no ice to the ice front. Moreover, its snowfields are too small and too low to supply ice for a glacier of its width, and it is evidently melting away at its western extremity it crosses over a divide and flows into a valley beyond the mountains immediately surrounding muir glacier are not high the highest peaks being between five thousand and seven thousand feet the mountains which first attract the attention of the visitor are mount wright mount case and pyramid peak plates one three and eight the first two by their jagged crests seen by snow colors the last by its symmetrical form all three by their proximity. The more distant mountains seem to lack somewhat in individuality. This is largely due to their distance, for they are from fifteen to thirty miles away. All is bare and bleak, and the scenery is entirely lacking in picturesqueness. If we go out on the ice as far as H, the three bold peaks of Mount Young show themselves over Tree Mountain, sea Plate 9, and the beautiful snow cones at the head of the northwestern tributary can be seen. SURFACE OF THE GLACIER The surface of the ice presents the honeycombed appearance common to all glaciers. It crunches under the foot, making walking very tiresome, and rapidly wears out one's boots. The surface ice varied very much with the weather. Sometimes after rain the ice was hard, smooth, and blue. Sometimes the rain increased the roughness. CREVASSES The eastern part of the glacier was free from all large crevasses, none in that part were too large to be stepped over this of course indicates a small differential motion not necessarily a small actual motion that this however is also small follows from our measures which show that although all the ice supply from the eastern part of the glacier is crowded through a narrow space between the ice front and the mountain to the east still the greatest motion here is only about two inches a day see page forty five the amount of crevassing in the other parts of the glacier varies much with the locality from an elevated point such as v from which the minor irregularities are not prominent the general smoothness seems to be broken over limited areas like the surface of a still lake ruffled in places by puffs of wind these are of course where the bed of the glacier presents some irregularity below them the sides of the crevasses are again pressed together and the surface resumes its general smoothness. The increase in the width of crevasses during the summer was very noticeable. In the beginning of September we were unable to cross the northwestern tributary, although earlier in the season Professor Muir crossed it without much difficulty. The place where the crevasses were most marked was the immediate neighborhood of the glacier's mouth. Here two sets of crevasses cutting each other obliquely divided the ice into great lozen-shaped masses, which, under the influence of the sun, rain, and winds, melted, in some cases, into narrow ridges, in others into sharp pinnacles. The ice, white near the surface, becomes bluer and bluer as one looks deeper into a crevasse, which finally ends in a dark narrow crack. This gives the impression of immense depth, but I do not believe that any of these crevasses are much over 150 feet deep. We sounded one and found it 123 feet. The best evidence, however, lies in the sections of the crevasses shown in the photograph of the ice front from which plate 13 is reproduced, in which the crevasses do not extend to the water-level, which in this part of the ice is less than 200 feet below the surface of the ice. The ribbon structure of Forbes was everywhere visible. On many of the pinnacles it could be seen cutting the stratification at a high angle. MELTING AND DRAINAGE the stakes put in the ice to measure the motion of the eastern part rose about fourteen inches in seven days which indicates a melting of about two inches a day this method is not reliable and we can consider the result only as approximate in this particular portion of the glacier the ice is very friable and the water does not collect on the surface in pools and streams but sinks through the ice and is carried off by some crevasse the portions just west of g and between white glacier and i contain many surface streams which pour into crevasses or moulins, but none of these streams were too large to leap, and all of them were perfectly clear. After falling into a crevasse, the water sometimes reaches the bed of the glacier and sometimes flows along a channel in the ice. We saw a very good example of such a channel. When we first came to the glacier, early in July, there was a large opening like a sewer in the front of the ice front near the eastern shore, some fifty or a hundred feet above tide-water from which issued a strong stream of very muddy water the opening must have been two hundred square feet in cross-section of which one-half was occupied by the stream now muddiness is a characteristic of water which has flowed along the bed of a glacier clearness of the surface water i therefore infer that this stream was part of the water which flowed along under the ice in the shallow side of the glacier and was diverted into some channel or crevasse which ended in the ice front. During our stay, the mouth of the stream steadily sank until it was on a level with the water of the inlet. This may have been due to either of two causes: one, the course of the channel may have been upward as it approached the ice front, so that as the ice melted and broke away, the section exposed was at lower levels; or two, the stream may have deepened its bed by cutting and melting. See page 42, note. On each side of the inlet large streams issue from the end of the ice at a number of points, and after rapid courses of between a mile and a mile and a half, empty into the inlet, forming quite large deltas. These streams were about thirty-five feet wide and two feet deep. The current is so swift that they roll down stones as large as one's fist, but the principal material that they carry off is in the form of fine mud. We used this water largely in our camp, and found that although most of the mud would precipitate when allowed to stand for a few hours, still the water remained quite turbid even after three or four days. The muddy character of the water in the inlet, a little west of the middle of the ice front, shows that another stream must discharge in that region, either under or through the ice. A small portion of the drainage of the glacier passes down Main Valley, but this does not amount to very much. I think the principal sources of the stream in this valley are from the snowfields and the smaller glaciers on its sides. Moraines and debris cones. The moraines of Muir Glacier seen from an eminence are very striking. Coming from many quarters, they sweep in bold curves across the ice converging toward the inlet. Many of them rise thirty or forty feet above the general level of the ice. But near the glacier's mouth they have become so diffused or have lost so much of the material in the crevasses that they do not affect the general surface in fact the moraines which cross the crevassed region near the end of the glacier have almost entirely disappeared it is only from an elevated point that they can be traced a large moraine from the eastern side of the southeastern tributary curves around and entirely closes in the end of the glacier and unites with several moraines from its western side into a confused mass which the time at our disposal did not permit us to separate among these moraines occurs the marble mentioned by professor wright the moraines from white glacier unite with those just mentioned a short distance below its mouth beyond which they appear closer and closer to the mountains they look like huge earthworks holding up the clean ice of this tributary twenty or thirty feet above the general surface of the glacier Dirt Glacier is completely closed in by a moraine across its mouth. Above this comes a zone of comparatively clean ice, and then for a mile or more the glacier is so completely covered by debris that no ice can be seen. Girdle Glacier also is completely hemmed in by a moraine. The next group of moraines, coming from Muir Valley and Granite Canyon, see page 10, unite near I, where they are apparently reinforced, and finally flow down the steep slope east of the ice front. These moraines are quite different from any I have ever seen or read of. They have two ends, but no beginning. From the region line between Tree Mountain and Granite Canyon, the ice slopes in both directions, toward the glacier's mouth, and into Main Valley. The former slope, as has been said, is a little over one degree. The latter is two or three times as much. Two of the moraines have their upper terminations in Berg Lake, a third ends in main lake to this group belongs also a moraine which issues from granite canyon flows around girdled glacier and ends against the side of the mountain a short distance down main valley or follows the mountain side to Berg lake another moraine issuing from granite canyon curves as though about to flow into main valley and then abruptly changes its direction and flows into muir inlet see page eleven a large moraine stretches from Nanatuck H to the corner of the ice front, and then scatters over the projecting wing. At first sight the Nanotuck seems to furnish the material of this moraine, but closer observation shows that it is not so. Mr. Cushing called my attention to the fact that although the material of this moraine is largely dark, igneous rock, the Nanatuck is a light, granitoid rock, and moreover, the debris on the Nanatuck is almost entirely of the same rock as the Nanatuck itself. Two moraines issuing from the east side of the first northern tributary come to an end about halfway between Snow Dune and H. An explanation of these moraines appears on page thirty-six. The remaining moraines are like those with which we are familiar from other glaciers, and call for no special mention. Some must be over twenty miles in length their origins are lost in the snows of the higher parts of the glacier sand cones and glacier tables also occur where the conditions are suitable the moraines from i end in a long sharp ridge the ice of which is hidden by only a thin covering of stones of small size there are two other similar ridges between this one and the side of the glacier which however are not connected with moraines all the large-sized debris seems to have slid off the steep side and left only the smaller fragments. South of the eastern end of Nantucket G we found two very curious cones of rolled stones. The stones were about the size of billiard balls and rested on the ice underneath, just at the angle of repose, so that the slightest disturbance, such as the melting of the supporting ice, would cause some to roll down. Their edges were rounded, and they presented exactly the appearance of having been knocked about by running water. Their uniform size shows that some agent has been at work rejecting both smaller and larger pieces. Perhaps they were collected by a stream at some point on the side of G, and an avalanche carried them out upon the ice. Other cones occur near these, but are not composed of similar material. End of Section four.